Romans chapter 5. If you'll open your Bibles there. We could easily spend 11 weeks on these 11 verses. We're going to cover them tonight. We're going to go after some of the particulars. And then Sunday morning, we're going to come back to these exact same 11 verses again and spend some time on the bigger picture. And it won't be enough, I guarantee you. So feel free to be reading through this yourself and asking the Lord about it and considering it and pondering it. It seems like the further into Paul's letter to the Romans we get, the deeper it gets, the sweeter it is, the richer, the more amazing. And and trust me, it's not going to stop with this evening. Father, I, I do ask Your blessing now, Your Spirit, Your teaching. You are our most holy rabbi. And we worship You and long simply to hear from You. Your words, Father. One word in particular tonight, may we all hear the word of reconciliation. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, let's get a running start at this. Pull back to verse 23 of chapter 4. Now, not for His sake only was it written that it was credited to Him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be, or actually to whom it is credited, as those who believe in Him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Life in Christ Jesus is unlike any other way of life. I'm not saying that it's supposed to be unlike any other way of life. I'm saying it is like any other way of life. I believe it is truly the only way to live. The only way to truly have life, to experience life in all of its fullness... Jesus said, I I came that you might have life and have it abundantly, overflowing, John 10.10. And that should define or describe the Christian life. I'm not talking about how the modern or or even the postmodern Christian chooses to live his or her life. And I'm not talking about the generic, sometimes even caricatured view of evangelicals as a voting block. I'm talking about who we are about what we genuinely become in Christ Jesus. And I think the tragedy is that we don't know enough about that to fully embrace it. That by going to Jesus and by going to His Word, we can know, we should know, we should be enabled to have life in Christ profoundly different than anything else. When we were studying Acts, remember we talked about a new breed of people. Truly born again into a new kind of existence that is unlike any other. And the more I'm in His Word, the more I'm convinced that's the way it's supposed to be. We should be radically different. Because once a person like Abraham makes that simple move into childlike trust, verse 1 tells us, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace. Now wait, we can't get to the peace yet. we got to stop earlier than that. Therefore, having been justified by faith. That word justification comes back up. It's that legal term for being righteous or right with God. But note this, it all comes in a split second. Justification 
It's quite literally a moment in time. Justification is not a process. Sanctification is a process. But justification is instantaneous. It happens and it's done. It's not a long, drawn-out court trial, though this is a legal term. But it's a legal term that is instantaneous. The prophecy of justification was first given by Isaiah. Or maybe not first, but it was definitely given by Isaiah. He said in Isaiah 53.11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. The father will be satisfied with what the son accomplishes as he bears the iniquities. He will justify the many. That's what the Lord in the past promised that His Christ would do. His Christ would come and justify. It was a past promise. But we now live on the other side of the exact moment that justification happened. Paul says here, and note this, having been justified. And that's the phrase. We have to come up with three words to cover what is one word in the Greek. Okay, having been justified, because the way the Greek word is written is in the aorist passive tense. Linguists call this, and I think this is a funny word, so you might want to jot it down. They call it a punctiliar action. Punctiliar. I had to look that up. What's a punctiliar action? It expresses something that happens in a moment of time. Punctiliar means that one minute the sinner stands condemned and the next no charges exist whatsoever. One moment you're before the judge without hope, the next moment you're leaving the court and you don't even know what happened. It's as though there were never any charges against you at all. And that moment, it is truly twofold. It happened at the crux of the cross. When Jesus cried, Tetelestai, it's finished. In that moment, justification was offered. In the moment when I had a flash of faith, when I said, yes, Lord, I trust in you, in that moment, in that split second, I was immediately among the having been justified. What that means is, Jesus people, look back. Look behind you. What do you see? There is nothing there but justification. There's no past sin life. There are no past failures. There's no past rebellion. There are no sorrows of sin. When I look back now, because I was justified in that moment in time, I look back and all I see is justification. I think far too many of us still hang on to the old stuff. But as far as God is concerned, when you trust in Christ, justification happens, and that stuff, man, is gone. Having been justified. Everyone has a past, except the justified. And if you are among those having been justified, you don't have a past. At least in terms of a past sin. It's gone. I told you, this is unlike any other kind of living. Everyone else on the planet looks over their shoulder. Everyone else is dogged by the sins of yesterday. The follower of Jesus need not be. We are those who have been justified. 
So therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're puzzled, there are actually three pieces here. Three pieces for the puzzle. The greatest, for it must come first, is peace with God. We have peace with God. Irene is the name, is the word. We get the the name Irene from it. Irene, which means peace. It means rest, quietness, harmony with another, which is what's indicated here. Suddenly now, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. But think for a moment about our American concept of peace and how we tend to view peace culturally. There's peace through passivity. Code pink peace. You know, there's all you need is love peace. Going to San Francisco with flowers in our hair peace. The failed experiment of the 60s peace. Peace through passivity. If we just all lay down our arms. You've heard me say before what's said often in Israel. If the if the uh, Muslim world around would lay down their arms, there could be peace. If the Israelis laid down their arms, there would be no Israel. Peace through passivity. That's the answer. We'll just all lay down our arms. Now listen, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm not a warmonger, and I'm not saying that everybody should arm up. But the reality is we are foolish to think in a sin-sick world that all we need to do is lay down arms and there will be peace. There will not be peace. It doesn't work. There will be overthrow. Peace through passivity is is a failed hope outside of Jesus. So there's the other option of peace through strength. Let's build up the arsenals. I mean, that's the alternative, right? Military might and weaponry. And the current geopolitical reality in the Middle East is we have a new arms race going on. All of the Middle Eastern Arab nations are now racing to become nuclear because Iran has had the door kicked open for them to become nuclear. That's what happens. Peace through strength. You know what? The truth is, leading from behind doesn't work. In fact, the only time that we have ever had peace is when one country, in this case Rome, when one country is powerful enough to impose it, then you can have peace. It's a controlled peace. It's an oppressive peace, but it's peace to a degree. That is the absence of war to a degree. But again, as long as there is sin in the world, peace through strength seems to be the only way mankind has managed evil at all. Peace through passivity, peace through strength. We struggle. How do we get this peace? The truth is, until the world is at peace with God, there will be no peace on earth. It's just the truth. Now, peace on earth is what He promised. He guaranteed it. He spoke it. And has He spoken? And and will He not bring it to pass? There will be peace on earth. In fact, the angels sang it, shouted it. Luke 2.13, suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. Peace with God. Peace with God. Now, a few weeks back, 
we contrasted this. You may recall two kinds of peace. There are three. But two kinds of peace. Peace with God. And we contrasted, we compared that to the peace of God. That there's peace with God and there's the peace of God. Here's the peace of God. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is a practical peace for the believer in Christ. You want to just have some peace of mind? Well, then you need the peace of God. It's a soulish kind of a peace. Because it tends to be peace in the warring place of my mind. Peace of mind and heart. Peace in my spirit. It's this mental, emotional, spiritual, calm confidence that that should mark the life of a believer. Okay? The peace of God. Why is that guy so so chill even though everything around him seems stormy and out of control? Peace of God. That's the peace of God. It bypasses all circumstance. Peace with God. The peace of God. But there's a third kind of peace in the New Testament. The peace of Christ. And the context of this is marvelous. The peace of Christ. Colossians 3.15 Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Get this. The peace of God is practical peace for the believer. The peace of Christ is personal peace for the body. It's peace in the body of Christ. It is a third powerful peace. It is a supernatural ability if we allow for it, for us to be at peace with one another when otherwise we might not be. When otherwise circumstances, conflicts, disagreements, different approaches, all these things that might cause division and warring, and tragically sometimes do, don't have to in the body of Christ if we have the peace of Christ. Because the peace of Christ is what allows us, by God's love, to love one another and to deal with life when it gets bumpy between us when we disagree when we are in conflict let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts Paul writes to which you are called in one body and we're at peace with one another the peace of Christ the peace of God that guards my mind and my heart keeps me from stress keeps me Relaxed, calm, confident, focused. The peace of Christ that maintains that unity in the body where there might not be otherwise. But understand, peace with God must precede both of those. Without peace with God, we cannot have the peace of God. Without peace with God, we cannot have the peace of Christ. We must begin. It starts with the peace with God. Because peace with God is not a practical peace for the believer in Christ. It's not a personal peace for the body of Christ. It is a positional peace through the blood of Christ. A positional peace that now for the first time, because I've been justified, having been justified by faith, now I have positional peace with the Lord. I have peace with God, which is, by the way, by the propitiation that we talked about. 
That is the blood sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath so that now with God I am at peace. No longer is there a war between us by my rebellion or a conflict because of my rejection. But now there's peace with God. In the Hebrew Scriptures, peace with God is the fullest measure of shalom. It's the highest hope of the Jew. Shalom. Psalm 85.7 says, Show us Your loving kindness, Your grace, O Lord, and grant us Your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will say, for He will speak shalom to His people, to His godly ones, but let not them turn back to folly. Isaiah 57.19 Peace, peace, to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Shalom, shalom. But the wicked are like the tossing sea. It cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. You can't have peace of mind. You can't have peace of fellowship. Until you first have peace with God, because without peace with God, you're still in the place of ungodliness, of wickedness, and there is no peace for the wicked. There is no rest. It's only through peace with God that the peace of God and the peace of Christ can rest in my soul. Isaiah 26, verse 3, The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace. Or as we studied years ago, literally, you will keep in shalom Shalom, because He trusts in you. Peace with God. No conflict, no war between us, no uncomfortable silence, no rebellion on my part, no wrath or anger on His part. Just perfect peace. John writes of this in 1 John 4.17. He says, By this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as He is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Now understand, please hear the context of that. Perfect love casts out fear, he says, because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. Perfect love casts out fear is not just a blanket statement. It's specifically the perfect love of God that draws us into salvation with God and faith in Jesus. Man, when I'm in that place, I have no more fear of punishment. No more fear of damnation. I have only the joy of salvation through the love of God. So all the fear goes away when I am in Christ. Not fear of the Lord, but fear of condemnation. Fear of the Lord is still a very healthy thing. But the fear that goes away is that fear that I'm going to be condemned. Because I have peace with God positionally. I experience the peace of God practically. And I share in the peace of Christ personally in the body. And all of this is through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's verse 1. Verse 2. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. The word introduction sounds like a Bible course. Scratch it out. Well, I, I, you know, write this in, if you will. 
the word is better translated access. Access. In fact, that's how the King James translates it. Jesus, by whom we also have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. We're not just being introduced to grace as a concept. We have access to stand in grace. Get a picture of that for a moment. We don't stand before grace. We don't stand next to grace. We don't stand by grace. We stand in grace. What's that like? I don't know, standing in a puddle? Standing in a pool? I am surrounded by grace because I'm not on it, next to it, above it, beside it. I am in it. I now have access to it. To be encompassed by it. Full access. You ever wonder how amazing it is that we have direct access to God? That you don't go through Pastor Rick. Hallelujah. That you don't have to contact me for a moment to sit together to go through me to get to the Father. Or to go through any other leader or priest or person in position over everybody else. No, we all have access, full access to the Father because we stand in His grace. It's a wonder to me. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.15, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. Now, if that was the only verse we had about God, we would be terrified shaking people. And yet, through His grace, by faith in Jesus, Hebrews 4.16 says, we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Full access to stand in grace before the Father. That's marvelous to me. And so with this full access in which, for the grace in which we stand, he says, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. What does it mean to exalt? If you have a King James translation, or New King James, it probably says rejoice, but that's not the word rejoice. And truly the word is exalt is not a word we use a lot. We may sing it occasionally in a hymn, but you don't normally say, boy, the clock struck five Friday afternoon and I just exalted. What is the concept? What does this truly mean? You're going to have to come back Sunday to talk about that. We're going to cover, cover exaltation <laughs> and consider what it means. But it's not rejoice. It's something else going on. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations... Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. Now stop right there. This sounds like a lecture my dad would have given me when I was a kid. Hang in there, son, because you're going to get perseverance and proven character. And I didn't care what character was. I thought character was a Disney person, you know. I didn't know what character. And perseverance and character and hope. But it starts with tribulation. Tribulation, flipsis. It's one of the hardest Greek words to say. T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. Flipsis. Good luck saying that one. Try saying it three times fast. Flipsis means to crush 
or to press. Philipsis in the Greek was similar to Shimone or Gat Shimone in the Hebrew. Does that sound familiar? Gethsemane, which is the Garden of the Olive Press. To be pressed, crushed. Philipsis speaks of that, literally, of the olive press where olives are put in. Some of you have seen the old-fashioned olive presses, a huge stone basin with a massive stone wheel that would slowly be rolled around the basin, crushing the olives and producing then that precious olive oil. That's flipsis. So when you think of the word tribulation, and this is tribulation with a little t, we're not talking about the great tribulation. That'll be another study. But trials and tribulations and hardships and difficulties, it is the word flipsis and it means crushing. Pressing. You know, when you're, when you're under pressure. And Paul says we exult in that. There was a mentality that I believe is very foreign, at least to the way I've been brought up, the way I have tended to think. I, I suspect it's different than the way you think as well. A mentality in the early church that we sometimes lack, and it's this, a ready reception for tribulation. Not just a, oh, I'll endure it if it comes, but welcoming it. Opening arms to it. Anticipating and expecting and almost looking forward to tribulation. I believe the first century church had it. It was certainly taught by the apostles a ready reception of tribulation. Paul was at Lystra midway through his first missionary journey. Things had gone okay, relatively well to this point. He gets into Lystra and angry Jews from Pisidian Antioch and other places, in fact, Jews from uh, Iconium, they come down, they follow Paul because they're unhappy about the message that he preached in their cities. They follow him now to Lystra in the area of Galatia, which would be Asia today. And in Acts chapter 14, just listen to this, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having won over the crowd, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. It would be the first time Paul was stoned within an inch of his life. Now, I think he probably did die here. And the Lord revived him. But it wouldn't be the last time Paul would be stoned and left for dead. Just the first. And they drag him out, throw him down. We're told that the disciples stood around him. And while they stood around him... He got up and ran like the Dickens for the next city. No. And entered the city. I really wonder, was he bruised? Was he bleeding? I mean, what does a person look like who has just been pelted with stones so badly that they've gone unconscious and everybody thinks they're dead if they aren't actually dead? You can't look good. Paul gets up dusts himself off, and walks right back into the city. What a testimony. But listen to this. 
They went away with Barnabas to Derby, and they preached the gospel there and made many disciples. And then they came back to Lystra again, and then to Iconium, and then to Antioch. It says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, and here's the key, listen to this, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now that's Paul's teaching to brand new believers. This wasn't a discipleship group of old-timey believers who are hardened to the world and can get through. Somehow we're going to get by. These are brand new, fresh Christians who had just come to faith because of the preaching of Paul on this missionary journey. And he's gathering them and saying, here's how you get to the kingdom of God through many philipsis. Through much crushing through a whole lot of pressure, guys. This is not what I would consider a key message of evangelism or early discipleship. And yet it was the message of Paul. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Question, do we welcome hardship? Not only expecting it, but doing so willingly, readily, gladly. Do you pray for hardship? I know even the question sounds crazy. I can tell you our brothers and sisters in the house church movement in China pray for hardship. I think I've mentioned to you all before that they specifically ask that we not pray that they stop being persecuted because if we do and the persecution stops, they fear that the growth of the gospel will stop as well. So they literally say, don't pray that the persecution stops. I don't think that way. I think, God, get me through this week. Lord, and please help me. My keys are locked in the car and I don't know what I'm going to do. Pressure. We have no idea. Now, I am no masochist. I happen to make a couple of comments here tonight. I'm not a warmonger and I'm not a masochist. Please understand both of those. And we are not called to be self-absorbed Eeyores, you know, victimized martyrs for the cause. Oh, we're going to suffer for Jesus. That's not the point. But an honest reading of the Scriptures tells us that not only was hardship expected, it was the sign of true believers in Jesus. It was part of how they knew. I'm a believer in Christ. I know, I see the bruises. I follow Jesus with everything I've got. I know, I see the scars. A ready welcoming of tribulation. That is so outside of our American Christian frame of reference, it's not even funny. I don't think that way. Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians 1.4, We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Now, if I preached a sermon like that today, people would say, you're a legalist, works-oriented guy, aren't you? No. No, I'm saved by grace. But the truth is, am I worthy of suffering for the kingdom? Am I willing to? Indeed, Paul writes, 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might. Not could. Will. 
And that's why I say, if you go through the New Testament, you discover that suffering, tribulation, pressure was a key element of faith. Not something that we, we hope doesn't come and pray that we're protected from. A hedge of protection. Again, as if that's going to keep Satan out. Who is it that says that, Tim? Uh, Tim Hawkins, yeah. Oh, I've got a hedge. It's a hedge! How do they know? <laughs> we fear it. We fear the tribulation that Paul says you got to go through. And by the way, joyfully. Willingly. By the way, you can only talk like this when you have peace with God. When you are at rest in Jesus Christ, spirit, soul, and body, then we can welcome the trials. We can invite the tribulations knowing, knowing, as Paul wrote, that those tribulations do bring about perseverance. Which means for the next tribulation, I'm even stronger than I was the last time. And perseverance brings about proven character. Which means I'm not a flash-in-the-pan believer. I'm actually a man of integrity in Jesus. When I say I follow Jesus, I do. As Paul said in Galatians 6, Let no man trouble me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. That's proven character, man. And proven character, hope. Again, we talk about enduring trials. Do we welcome them? And are our trials anywhere near comparative to those of the suffering saints in the first couple or three hundred years of the church? Toe stubs, parking tickets, the seasonal flu. These are not tribulations, gang. That's just life. That just happens to everyone. But James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Man, that's a good thing. Count it all joy. And Jesus even said, Blessed are those, Matthew 5.10, who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus could talk about that because Jesus knew what heaven was like. Because he was from there. So when he says rejoice, you have reward in heaven. It's like, no, duh, of course tribulation's worth it here knowing I'm going to be there. Why don't we experience more of that kind of tribulation? Maybe you've asked yourself that question. I have. Anytime this issue of crushing, of pressing, of tribulation comes up, I've wondered, Lord, then why don't I experience more? I trust You. I believe in You. I follow You. I've given You my life. Why don't I have more persecution than I actually do? And I prayed about that this week. Lord, what's the answer to this? Here's the thing. I think we will. I think we will when we are ready to receive it. 
You may already, because the Lord has counted you worthy of the suffering. You may already, because the Lord has recognized in your faith, in your spirit, a readiness to receive tribulation in the name of Jesus. Bring it on. Bring it on. I will hold on to you. You know what's great about tribulation? When you're in the midst of true persecution for Jesus, you can't trust in anything else. You can only trust in Him. You can't trust in yourself to get out of it because you're in the middle of it. You can't see any other way, only Him. Which in my mind makes tribulation an awfully marvelous thing. Paul unveils the value of tribulations. We're going to come back to this a little bit more on Sunday. But it all comes to a head with what he calls a hope that does not disappoint. Verse 5. Hope does not disappoint. This is the first mention, by the way, of the Holy Spirit in the letter to the Romans. Listen to this. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And that's the first time Paul mentions the Holy Spirit. And it's not accidental. Who wrote, who authored the letter to the saints in Rome? It wasn't Paul, it was the Spirit. The Spirit authoring this letter through His servant Paul deemed it necessary to wait until this verse to introduce Himself. To mention Himself. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's huge. It tells us two things. That the primary fruit of the Spirit is love. Because He's the one pouring out the love within our hearts. And it also tells us that the Holy Spirit must be there in the heart. The only way you can pour out God's love within the heart is to be in the heart, right? The only way God's Spirit can pour out His love within my spirit is to be present, abiding, residing, and pouring out love in my spirit. He's here. And in this marvelous passage, I mean, Paul is taking us all the way from justification to peace to the glory of God, to exalting in tribulations, all the way to hope that does not disappoint, because the Spirit's here. And what is He doing? What is the number one thing that the Spirit is doing in my heart? Pouring out the love of God. Pouring out the love of God. Even in tribulation. Even in hardship and difficulty. I don't know why anyone would want anything else. There is no disappointment in the love of God. Hope doesn't disappoint because the Spirit is busy pouring out love into our hearts. What does that mean? How does that work? When when Paul makes this comment, hope does not disappoint, even the phraseology, I think he has in mind Isaiah 28, verse 16. He will refer to this verse two times explicitly later in the letter to the Romans. Here, I believe it's implicit. Hope does not disappoint. Explicitly, Romans 9.33, he'll say, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Paul quotes it again, Romans chapter 10, verse 10. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. 
And here Paul says, hope does not disappoint. And I think the three are connected. Isaiah 28, 16. Here's the original quote. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed, and he who believes will not be disturbed. Now, three times Paul uses this word disappointed. Hope does not disappoint. And he who believes will not be disappointed. But the original quote was, whoever believes will not be disturbed. Okay, so which one is it? Is Paul misquoting? No, Paul is probably quoting from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, from the Septuagint, which is why he quotes disappointed, and what we read is disturbed. But it's the same concept. Both the Greek and the Hebrew implications are here. You're not going to be shaken, and you're not going to be shamed. You're not going to be rattled, and you're not going to be embarrassed. You won't be disturbed and you won't be disappointed. It's both. And in verse 5, Paul says this, Hope does not disappoint. Literally, hope does not put to shame. Maddie, can I, can I share what happened here? I know it was... Can I share that embarrassing moment? That would be alright? Because it's perfect. Are you sure? Alright, I got the okay. I got the okay. We're up here on stage, and you got to understand, when the lights are out, you can't see anything. And we're up here kind of rehearsing and preparing for tonight, and a young man came walking in, sat at the very back row. And Maddie, bless her heart, thought that it was a friend of hers from Idaho. It wasn't. She found that out after she bounded off the stage and up the middle aisle with enthusiasm and excitement, and she realized it when she actually could see his face and the horror. Yeah. <laughs> What's the point of that? Hope does not disappoint. Now, seriously, because this is a perfect example. Thank you so much for doing that, because this is a perfect example. Hope does not disappoint. She sees this guy and, and hopes there's a moment of, oh, it's my friend from Idaho visiting me out of the blue, how marvelous, and she's filled with hope and races to the end of the aisle and it's not him. Oh, disappointment. Disappointment. It's not, this is not what I thought. That's the idea here, gang. Hope does not disappoint. It does not put to shame. Because you don't arrive and suddenly go, Oh, really? Let me give you another example. It's like going to Bethlehem. For many people. Oh, I can't wait to see Bethlehem, that little hamlet. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. How still we see thee lie. And then you get to Bethlehem and it's like, Really? You see the church of the nativity bullet riddled. There's a darkness there. Now, now where we go, when we go to Israel, we go to the shepherd's fields. We go out kind of on the outskirts of Bethlehem and, it, and there's something profound there. But Bethlehem, it's one of the most disappointing tourist attractions in the world. It literally is on the top ten list of most disappointing. Because you arrive there with high hopes only to be disappointed. Paul says hope in Christ 
does not disappoint. You arrive and you're not ashamed. You're not embarrassed because you had such high hopes. You are completely thrilled. Overwhelmed when you get there. It does not put you to shame. You see, here's what's happening. Isaiah's prophecy, it takes all of the focus off of self-made religion, which is always disappointing and always shaming. And it puts it on the rock, who is Jesus. When you come to Jesus, you are not disappointed. When you come to church, you may be. When you come to religion, you may find it just doesn't do it for you. Or you might find yourself ashamed because you cannot live up to the standard. But when you come to Jesus, when you come to the precious cornerstone, you will not be disturbed, disappointed, ashamed, none of it. Because now you're dealing with Jesus, who is grace and who is truth. And He does not shake, rattle, shame, or embarrass. Hope does not disappoint. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 3.11, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is the laws and requirements and rules of religion. No. The foundation is Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus we come to. A solid foundation. A relationship that depends on Him, not you. And for Maddie's sake, she runs up the middle of the aisle and there He is, Jesus, just as she expected in all of His glory and she is thrilled beyond measure. She's not embarrassed. She is overwhelmed. Hope does not disappoint. When God pours out His love, you never stand there embarrassed thinking... Just not what I hoped it would be. It's always better. Now, someone might ask this question. So how come I'm disappointed? And I would say the answer to that depends on you. It may be because you're pursuing religion. And that's got to be disappointing. It may be a complete misunderstanding of what Jesus has done. What He's offered. I think more often than not... The answer to how come I'm disappointed is you won't be. You just haven't gotten there yet. You're not to the end of the aisle. You're way up here on stage thinking you're seeing. I know I'm really dragging this out for you, sweetie. You're, you're not thinking. You're not assuming. You, you know, Maybe you're just this far down and you just haven't gotten there yet. I'm disappointed. You haven't arrived you got some trials and tribulations and some pressing that you got to go through first, brother, sister. I've got some hardship i got to experience first. But man, once I have gone through that and that perseverance is developed and that proven character is developed, I now have hope. And the hope does not disappoint because the answer at the end of the aisle is Jesus Christ and Him crucified, standing there resurrected, glorified, saved. And by the way, so am I. Hope does not disappoint. Remember that it's hope that follows proven character, follows perseverance, happens in tribulations. So if right now you're in the place of tribulation, count it all joy. And take God's word for it that when you arrive at hope, you will not be disappointed. Verse 6. 4. 
while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That verse alone is overwhelmingly packed with theology. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time? It was the right time in history, gang. We actually talked about this back at Christmas time. Galatians 4, verse 4. When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And if you didn't hear that teaching, I encourage you to go back to Christmas Eve. I think it was Christmas Eve. Or maybe it was the Sunday before. Go back. It's so valuable to realize, to look at the world into which Jesus came. That point in history. Why then as opposed to any other time? And it's breathtaking to consider. At the right time, Christ died. The right time in history, but also at the right time in my helplessness. At the right time in my helplessness, verse 7 says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, Though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While I was a sinner, while I was helpless, while I was among the ungodly, that's the right time for Jesus to die. Jack Johnson sings a song. I'm kind of a Jack Johnson fan, at least musically. And he sings a song called uh, Good People. And the chorus of the song goes, Where'd all the good people go? Where'd all the good people go? I've been watching. I don't see them on the TV shows, he sings. Where'd all the good people go? To which I would answer in a little bridge refrain in that song, They were never here. Where do they go, man? They were never here. Think about it. Even in your good moments, even among those nice folk who you might consider worthy of, of personal self-sacrifice, even then you got to think twice before you're going to take a bullet. Who would die for Charles Manson? Who would be willing to die for Hitler? Now we could come up with a whole litany of sin-sick people. I won't. There's some names I could come up with and probably get myself into trouble. <laughs> this is the godly paradox of Romans chapter 4, verse 5. But to the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. A godly paradox. He comes to the ungodly The ungodly trusts in Him and He's saved. The wicked, the unrighteous, the sinner. This is God's answer to Romans 1.18. We've come full circle. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us at the right time. Why didn't you wait till we cleaned it up a little bit? Because it would never happen. Because we would never 
be clean enough. We would never get there. He would wait forever. At the right time, He died for me. The right time in history and the right time in my helplessness and the cross, gang, is the definitive demonstration of God's love. If anyone ever asks you, how do I know that I know that I know that God loves me? The cross. That needs to be the immediate answer. How do you know He loves He died for you. I mean, who at that point is going to go, well, yeah, but I need more proof than that. You need more proof than that? you got a problem, bud. He died for you. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Isaiah 53, 6. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us, of all of us, to fall on Him. How do I know God loves me? The cross, the cross, the cross. It's proof positive. Greatest proof in all history of the love of God. In this is love, John writes. 1 John 4.10 Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The cross, man. In Romans 15.13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this. And He laid down His life for His friends. It's the cross. At the right time. Verse 9. Much more then. Having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through Him. He just said it again. Did you catch it? Having been justified. He's just repeated Himself. We are among the having been justified. That moment in time, justification, redemption, propitiation. That moment in time accomplished on the cross and accepted the very moment that I trusted in Him. Verse 10, he says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Now this is one of those verses you don't want to just skim over because it's like, oh yeah, okay, good. Reconciled, saved, whatever. No. Don't miss what he's saying. This is a death and life proposition. Reconciled through his death, Paul says. Saved by his life. You get that? If we've been reconciled, to God through His death, so His death brought about the reconciliation, then He says, much more, which is Paul's way of saying, how much greater is this? What, Paul? Having been reconciled through His death, we shall be saved by His life. What does that mean? It's not talking about His past earthly life. It is talking about His present glorious life. I was reconciled by His death. But right now, today, this moment, in the sanctuary, tonight, I am being saved by His life. The Hebrew writer puts it for us this way. Hebrews 7.25 He is able also to save forever. Les calls it being saved some more. Right? You've heard him say that a few times. Being saved, He's able to save forever 
That's ongoing, constant salvation. Those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to do what? To make intercession for them. Are you all shocked that Les got that one? We are saved. Get that. That's what he's talking about there in verse 10. We shall be saved by His life. I've already been reconciled by His death. I have peace with God because of that reconciliation. But now I'm saved by His life. Which means every moment of every day, Jesus, my advocate, is interceding for me. Making sure, confirming my salvation. And by the way, the Hebrew writer says, He will do that forever. He will never stop making sure that your salvation is secure. Wow. There will never be a moment when out of the corner of His eye, God the Father looks at me and goes, I don't know if that Jesus is right there. No, He's good. He's good. I know He's a little weird. But I got Him covered. Saved by His life. That's just... How awesome. And not only this. I mean, if that weren't enough. We also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And there's a definite article there. So it's not just reconciliation. It's the reconciliation. The reconciliation. We're going to end on this. The reconciliation, or quite literally, the exchange. The word reconciliation, which is hard to say. Katalage, got it. Katalage, or katalagin in, in this place right here, is literally the exchange or restoration to favor. We have received the katalage. We have received the exchange, the restoration to favor. But this is what you got to understand about the word. This is awesome. You know how the Hebrew scriptures, as we went through, we would look at these Hebrew words and they were just so picturesque. You know, they, they painted pictures. That's, that's the Hebrew language. It's very visual. You know, and, and that's the Hebrew mindset. They think in terms of pictures, which is why Jesus came teaching parables. The Greek language is not picturesque, it's reasonable. Every word has a very precise, very well-reasoned, thought-out meaning to it. It is the most reasonable language in the history of humanity. And here this word, kata lago, kata lagain, it's two words put together, and that's what makes this so brilliant. The reconciliation, the exchange, kata, means down from a higher place. And alaso or alago means exchange. The exchange, my friends, is an exchange from a higher to a lower place. What do you mean? God was in Christ, and here's the word again, reconciling the world to Himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19 Not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Not the work. He did the work. We get the word. The word of reconciliation. The exchange down. Meaning, His glory for my shame. Exchange. His grace 
for my sin exchanged. His life for my life exchanged. You go into American Eagle and you exchange a pair of pants for our thinking. You give them that pair and you get the same pair but one that fits better. I'm just making an exchange, right? This is not that. This would be like walking into American Eagle. Lame example, but I'll give it to you anyway. Handing them a pair of pants and walking out of there with an entirely new wardrobe. You've just exchanged up a bit, I would say. But in this case, the exchange is all of my patheticness for all of His glory. The exchange down. The reconciliation. We're now in this restored relationship. This relationship of favor because God exchanged my disgraceful place on the cross with Himself. You know, we all belong there, right? The cross was our final destination. And God said, no, we're going to make the exchange. Jesus, you go to the cross. Rick, I ask you to do one thing. Trust me. Just trust me. And I make the exchange. And we are foolish if we think that we can do anything to deserve that because we don't. It's an exchange down. And because of the exchange, we have peace with God. We come right back around. By faith we have peace with God. Access to stand in His grace. Joy in tribulation. Hope that does not disappoint. His love proven. His Spirit given. So we bear the word of reconciliation. You see what I mean? Life in Jesus Christ is unlike any other life. Why would you want to live any other way? When you can live in Him. Peter thought about it. Actually, Peter began to say to Jesus, and I love how the word says, Peter began to say, in Mark chapter 10, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. And I think right there Jesus interrupted him. Because it says Peter began to say, he had a train of thought. That Jesus knew was coming. And I think it would have gone something like this. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. So what do we get? Because I've given up an awful lot here, Lord. I mean, I think you know that. I had a big fishing industry going on in the Galilee. I had my boats. had my workers, my nets. It was all good. And you came along. We gave it all up for you. What did we get? Jesus, almost reading His mind, says, Mark 10, verse 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much. Now, in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. The exchange. And we tonight have been given the word of reconciliation. Is that remarkable? Praise the Lord. And we praise you, Father, for the word of reconciliation. Because now this is my word, Lord. And I pray for the grace and the opportunity to share this word. To tell people about the exchange. You got all raggedy stuff, you you can exchange it for glory. Lord Jesus, 
we recognize that for us to have that glory, to someday be glorified by You, that You had to land in that place of absolute shame. That the exchange went the other way for You. Help us to embrace the word of reconciliation tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen.